The nuclear powers that be will always try and get away with whatever they can get away with, which is why they're not above shouting down a powerhouse knowledge base like San Onofre Safety's Donna Gilmore in a public meeting. That's what happened last week. But when you hear what Donna's got to say about the August 3 near miss at San Onofre... It wasn't only safety problems and inadequate staff and unqualified staff. He said it's an engineering problem out there. So we're talking about Holtec having bad engineering in addition to just loading errors. Edison's trying to downplay it and just say it's a training problem. No, this is total mismanagement and a bad decision by Edison and a bad engineering design by Holtec. And she's got a lot more where that came from, with the footnotes to prove it. When you hear from someone so knowledgeable that the nukesters try to shut her up or shut her down, you know in your gut she's talking about that seat that we are all sitting in. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we follow up on last week's Nuclear Hot Seat special on the shocking near-miss of what could have been a catastrophic radiation-releasing accident at the San Onofre nuclear waste dump, shuttered nuclear reactors on the edge of the Pacific Ocean in Southern California. We talk with Donna Gilmore, who is able to say a lot more to us than Southern California Edison and the California Public Utilities Commission would have allowed her to say at their August 9 community enragement uh, community engagement panel. <laughs> Sorry, my Tourette's is acting up. And we will talk with Beyond Nuclear's Linda Pence Gunter on a new information source that is already helping activists around the world to link up and fight back. We'll also have as much nuclear news from around the world as we can fit in, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than was in Paul Manafort's conviction. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, August 21st, 2018, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Catching up with the news this week, and there is a ton of it. On Wednesday, August 8th, the Los Angeles City Council voted to approve a resolution that urges the U.S. to embrace the U.N. Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons and implement important protective policies, such as ending the president's sole unchecked authority to launch a nuclear attack, taking U.S. nuclear weapons off hair-trigger alert, and canceling U.S. plans to replace its entire nuclear arsenal with enhanced weapons. It's part of a grassroots movement called Back from the Brink, and we'll have more information on that in the coming weeks. 
in Colorado on August 9th, a judge refused to issue an order that would have kept the Rocky Flats National Wildlife Refuge, put wildlife refuge in quotes, off limits while the courts hear a lawsuit claiming the government hasn't studied public safety close enough. Rocky Flats was once part of a nuclear weapons plant, is a Superfund site, and one of the most polluted places in the United States. But wildlife doesn't vote. Catching up with federal government nuclear shenanigans, the Trump administration has quietly taken steps that may inhibit independent oversight at its most high-risk nuclear facilities, including some buildings at the Los Alamos National Laboratory, this according to Department of Energy documents. Steps include preventing the Defense Nuclear Facility Safety Board from accessing sensitive information, imposing additional legal hurdles on board staff, and mandating that Energy Department officials speak, quote, with one voice when communicating with the board. According to Reuters News Agency, President Trump's national security advisor, John Bolton, has announced that North Korea has not taken the appropriate steps to denuclearize. On June 13, Trump claimed that, quote, there is no longer a nuclear threat from North Korea, end quote. And speaking of Michael Cohen, on August 2nd, on August 2nd, it was revealed by the Wall Street Journal that a major donor to President Trump agreed to pay $10 million to the president's then-personal attorney, Michael Cohen, if he successfully helped obtain funding for a nuclear power project, including a $5 billion, with a B, loan from the U.S. government. The donor, Franklin L. Haney, gave the contract to Trump attorney Michael Cohen in early April to assist his efforts to complete a pair of unfinished nuclear reactors in Alabama, the Belafonte nuclear power plant. And might that or other monies be behind these two stories? First, that the Department of Energy has confirmed funding for nine nuclear projects. They will receive a total of $20 million in funding for research and development purposes. And U.S. Energy Secretary Rick Perry said that this highlighted the importance of early-stage research to ensure that such technologies are given the greatest opportunity for successful development. But are they doing the equivalent for solar, wind, hydroelectric, geothermal? I think you know the answer to that one. And Congress is pushing for a multi-billion dollar nuclear reactor that critics are calling a boondoggle and a pork barrel project. Regarding the design of the versatile fast neutron source, which is like an experimental breeder reactor, in March Congress gave the project $35 million for the year, even though DOE only requested $10 million. How did that happen? So many problems at the Hanford site in southeast Washington, we only have time for the headlines. Tri-city mayors worry about catastrophic Hanford tunnel collapse. If work doesn't start soon to stabilize a Hanford tunnel storing radioactive waste. Plutonium-contaminated equipment taken into nearby Richland by mistake. Fire at Hanford Radioactive Lab sends workers to the hospital. And a sinkhole has been confirmed on the tank farm at the Hanford site. And with wildfires continuing to rage in the western part of North America, we're hearing reports of increased radiation levels being released with the smoke, much as happened with wildfires near Chernobyl. We'll link to a story about this. 
There was a petition filed with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission by Beyond Nuclear and other public interest groups to shut down or take other remedial action for 18 nuclear reactors at 14 facilities because of defects that were found in parts that were manufactured by Arriva Les Creusot Forge in France. When the discovery of the defective parts was found in France, French regulators requested Electricité de France, EDF, to close the reactor in order to test materials in it. Eventually, 20 of the country's 58 reactors were taken offline, more than one-third. But here in the U.S., the NRC has gone, eh, the defects appear to be negligible, that's a quote word, and do not warrant immediate action protecting people and the environment, my posterior. And in more federal mealy-mouthedness about nuclear, federal health officials agree that radioactive waste in St. Louis area may be linked to cancer. Gee, could you spare it? A recent health report found some residents who grew up in areas contaminated by radioactive waste decades ago may have increased risk for bone and lung cancers, among other types of diseases, according to an assessment conducted by the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry, a branch for the U.S. Centers for the Disease Control and Prevention. The conditional nature of their statement does not hold up well against the evidence put forth by Just Moms STL and the Coldwater Creek Just the Facts group, which have documented cases of multiple illnesses, including rare cancers, throughout the area. And in Nebraska, the Department of Energy is holding a road show to show people how transuranic waste transport from Argonne National Laboratories in Illinois to the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant in Carlsbad, New Mexico, is going to be perfectly safe. And of course, all events are free to the public. Over to Japan, where tens of thousands of workers have been exposed to radiation risks in the Fukushima cleanup, according to three UN rights experts. In a joint statement released on Thursday, August 16, the experts expressed their deep concerns about possible exploitation by deception regarding the risks of exposure to radiation, possible coercion into accepting hazardous working conditions because of economic hardships, and the adequacy of training and protective measures. Yep, that's nuclear. Workers hired to contaminate Fukushima reportedly include migrant workers, asylum seekers, and people who are homeless, these UN experts said. A spokesman for TEPCO said they were unable to immediately comment on the statement. TEPCO is also working hard to rebrand the image of the Fukushima nuclear plant, bringing in school groups, diplomats, and other visitors to walk around and appreciate the flashy new administrative building. The debris from the triple meltdown has either been removed or covered and covered up, and officials tout the quote-unquote light radioactive security measures now possible. Yeah, light as in glow-in-the-dark. And visitors have been allowed to move around near the reactors on foot rather than only in vehicles. Also in this rebranding process, TEPCO is going to open a museum to display the decommissioning process for the Fukushima reactors. What they fail to mention is you can only decommission an operating reactor. What they are doing is cleaning up a disaster site or hiding the worst of it. 
This museum exhibition, which is scheduled to start this November, will mostly display films in which actors recreate scenes in the form of dramas to inform visitors of how the Fukushima nuclear disaster that began on March 11, 2011 was handled, some might say mishandled, and the follow-up work. That's in alignment with what some would call remodeling and others would call revisionist sanitizing on displays at the Peace Memorial Museum in Hiroshima. Gloria Roxy, an admin on the Coalition Against Nukes Facebook page, wrote, I've been working with Hiroshima and Nagasaki A-bomb survivors for about five years. I went through archival photos and personal photos. I had to sanitize an exhibit I curated for the university I used to work with because the pictures on display could have hurt American people. And that's what's happening right now in Hiroshima. Graphic pictures are being removed. Graphic writings are being removed, all because they are trying not to hurt the USA tourists who go to visit the place. And with word of another positive pre-Olympics rebranding exercise involving Fukushima Daiichi, Kyoto News has written about a new admission by Tokyo Electric Power Company, TEPCO. And that is that the water decontamination systems are not removing quote-unquote, almost all of the contamination, as previously claimed. TEPCO admitted new levels of specific radioisotopes, iodine-129, ruthenium-106, and technetium-99, all of which are considered to pose enough of a public health risk that they need to be controlled. Total of this newly declared contamination amounts to over 196 billion, with a B, becquerels of radiation. TEPCO has been trying to gain the needed permissions to dump this water into the Pacific Ocean, claiming it only contained tritium and trace amounts of the other isotopes. But regional fishing groups are among those that have fought the dumping plan, claiming it would hurt seafood sales. And then there's this. Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out of week. On Sunday, August 18, Haragama Obama Beach in Soma City, Fukushima Prefecture, was opened to the public. A ritual was held to pray for safety before the beach was officially declared open, which seems like a good idea considering its proximity to the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear facility and all of that becquerel-laden water that TEPCO wants to dump into the Pacific. Four beaches in Fukushima Prefecture have reopened since the disaster, but the remaining 14 beaches remain closed in the aftermath of the nuclear accident. And local officials have decided some of them will remain closed permanently. So if there's no danger, why are 14 beaches closed and possibly remaining closed permanently? And you know this is all about the image of Japan in advance of the Tokyo Olympics. And that's why, whatever powers that be in Japan decided to open up that beach, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. In Canada, a tweet by the Canadian Foreign Minister Christia Freeland criticizing the arrest of Saudi women's rights activists may have just sunk a Westinghouse nuclear deal with the Saudis. Starting on August 7, the Saudis took a range of retaliative actions against Canada, including the ordering the immediate sale of Saudi-owned Canadian assets, no matter the cost, and a suspension of all new business with Canada. 
Westinghouse is currently owned by a Canadian corporation. We'll have a link to this up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 374. Russian scientists have taken to the seas in a research vessel as part of an effort to locate and map radioactive waste, nuclear reactors, and other castoffs the Soviet Navy scuttled in the Arctic's Kara Sea. Beginning in 1955 and continuing to the early 1990s, the Russian Navy dumped enormous amounts of irradiated debris. The list of sunken objects includes 17,000 containers of radioactive waste, 19 ships containing radioactive waste, 14 nuclear reactors, including five that still contain spent nuclear fuel, the K-27 nuclear submarine with its two reactors loaded with nuclear fuel, and 735 other pieces of radioactively contaminated heavy machinery. It seems that Mother Nature has found yet another way to disable nuclear reactors. Four reactors at the Pickering Nuclear Station in Canada were forced offline on July 22nd when algae blooms blocked cooling water intakes. Sean Patrick Stencil of Greenpeace Canada pointed to climate change and global warming as the cause, saying warmer water will help create more algae and the impact will continue to affect plant operations. And in New Zealand, that country is planning to ban foreign buyers from purchasing existing homes in an attempt to tackle a housing crisis by halting the trend among the world's wealthy to snap up property in the country. This is a story we initially tackled with climate change activist and nuclear hot seat stalwart Kevin Hester, who lives in New Zealand and who warned about this situation in nuclear hot seat number 233 from December 8, 2015. Apparently, all those rich people saw the movie on the beach and thought that they would be safe south of the equator. Kevin has got a thing or two to share with them. We'll post a link to Kevin's podcast, Nature Bats Last, on our website. We'll have this week's featured interviews in just a moment. But first, the nuclear news just keeps rolling along. Have you noticed? But for the most part, it's invisible or damped down on mainstream media. Now, I know that you, as an individual, care about getting honest, verifiable nuclear news, because if not, you wouldn't be hearing this right now by listening to this program. Now, that's what we set out to provide at Nuclear Hot Seat every week verifiable nuclear information that's been sourced, checked, and footnoted, plus interviews with people who are genuine experts on various aspects of the nuclear industry and its impact on life, health, and our shared genetic future. Without your support, Nuclear Hot Seat would not be able to continue. So if you're grateful for the information you get from the show, help us out, won't you? You can do so by sending a donation that helps us meet our expenses. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button. That's where you can send a donation of any size, either as a one-time gift or on a recurring basis. And for those of you who want to make a big difference and find yourselves on a budget, as who doesn't these days, on the website there's also a big green Donate button that allows you to easily set up a recurring donation of just $5 a month the same as you'd spend on a cup of coffee and a decent tip. Now, $5 may not seem like a lot, but it makes a huge difference in our ability to meet our expenses. So please, do what you can to help Nuclear Hot Seat stay up and running as we search out and share information that the nuclear industry would really rather you not know. Whatever you can do to help, you've got my gratitude. 
Here's this week's featured interview. Last week on episode 373, we had a special on San Onofre and the recent revelation that on August 3rd, there was a near-miss accident which took place while trying to load a spent fuel canister into its storage space. We're talking about more than 30,000 pounds of still highly radioactive fuel rods inside a canister that is only five-eighths of an inch thick stainless steel. We call them thin cans or tin cans. And while the canister was being guided into its unfortunately probably permanent storage space, it got hung up on a guide lip, went crooked, jammed into the space and was hanging only by a quarter inch of that guide lip and in danger of falling 18 feet. Even worse than the actual near miss of the accident, at a California Public Utilities Commission public engagement meeting six days later on August 9th, Edison did not bother to mention the problem, at least not until a whistleblower took his career in his hands and told what happened. In the following rush of response to try and manage the situation, one woman tried to call out Edison's chief nuclear officer on a blatant, verifiable lie and was shouted down by the so-called experts on the panel. So we decided to find out what she had to say. Donna Gilmore is that woman. She's the founder of SanOnofreSafety.org, a public resource for finding factual information about the serious safety issues with the San Onofre Nuclear Generating Station and the tons of nuclear waste stored just a few miles south of San Clemente, California, on the beach. Donna and I spoke on Monday, August 20th, 2018. Donna Gilmore. It's great to have you back with us on Nuclear Hot Seat and providing this latest update on the nightmares down at San Onofre. Um, Thanks for having me. I'm I'm looking forward to this. When last we heard from you, you were trying to call out the chief nuclear officer for uh, Southern California Edison, Thomas Palmasano, on a lie, and you were being roundly shouted down by multiple members of the panel at the California Public Utilities Commission community engagement or community enragement meeting that took place on August 9th. What was the nature of what was being said and what was the nature of what you were trying to say so that we can understand this as our point of departure today? My investigation has shown that Edison is out of compliance with their NRC license. Their license that requires that if needed, they have to be able to unload fuel from a canister in dry storage and put it back in the pool. And one of the members of the public asked the question, uh, do you meet your retrievability requirement? And then David Victor, chairman of the meeting, asked Tom Palmazano, and Palm said, oh, we're in compliance with all the requirements of you know, their license. And that's when, as I just stood up, you know, they don't allow you to talk after they give you the answers. But I stood up anyway, because that was a lie. And I called Tom on the lie. I said, you're, you're required to be able to unload fuel from the canisters and you can't do it and you admitted it, but condition eight 
of your license requires you to be able to do that. And once I said that, he backed off and agreed that their license requires them to do that. And then he proceeded to claim that they won't have a problem doing it. And the example he gave was of a totally different scenario. He said that it had been done before with a, he called it a bolted canister of Palisades. I researched that. That was a thick wall cast with a bolted lid. The fuel had cooled for decades. So there was not a problem putting that one back into the pool. Pomazano, Southern California Edison's chief nuclear officer, said in an earlier CEP meeting that they couldn't put those Holtec cans back underwater and unload them because they're 200 to 300 degrees Celsius. They're too hot. Water boils at 100 degrees. And he admitted, so honesty we got, they can't put them back in. They call it a reflooding problem. So now he's trying to walk that back, but he doesn't have the evidence to walk it back. So they are out of compliance with their license. What this means is that the Coastal Commission, the State Lands Commission, should stop Edison from doing any more loading at San Onofre. Right now, they do not have a valid NRC license to do that job. And the California Public Utility Commission should stop giving them part of that over a billion dollars to load these canisters in that dry storage container. So the Public Utility Commission should stop giving them money right now. Explain to us where that money comes from how it has been accrued. Okay. This is a, it's a decommissioning trust fund. There were three reactors at San Onofre, Unit 1, 2, and 3. I'm referring to the Unit 2 and 3 trust fund. This is money that rate payers have contributed over the decades to this fund. It's made some interest on the fund. And when they started, there was $4.3 billion, not $1 million, dollars billion dollars sitting in that trust fund of basically our money and Edison wants to get their hands on all that money and we need to stop that. They're doing an incompetent job and they're putting all of us at risk with what they're doing. What has been happening since that August 9th meeting? We had the revelation by the whistleblower. We had the either stumble bum or neurolinguistic programming input or both simultaneously from Tom Palmasano trying to cover that. We've had a couple of insipid articles that have appeared in the San Diego Union Tribune and also I think it was the same article or pretty close to it up here in Los Angeles that made it just sound like they needed a little bit more training and that was it. What has been done in terms of informational follow-up and in terms of an outraged response and action to stop Edison in its tracks? Well, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, I have sent them a number of emails. They normally respond to me with some kind of answer. They are not touching this with a 10-foot pole. I cannot get any response from the NRC about what they're doing. I have seen no, I don't think they've completed their investigation of this whole situation for the fact that Tom admitted that they can't unload canisters and now this new drop issue. And it was infuriating to hear David Victor, who's a policy professor, right? He, he's not a, a, an engineer of any kind. And Edison claimed that that canister that was hanging by 
two inches on a four inch lip in the hole that at 18 foot drop that it can handle more than that. That is total BS. And and I think they mentioned a 30 foot drop, a 30 foot drop was analyzed for you. You have it in a transport cast with these extra delimiters to cushion the fall. Totally not relevant to this. I found a technical document from Holtec that said, if you have a drop of more than 11 inches of a canister, and that was inside a thick wall cast, if it's over 11 inches, you've got to open that canister back up, put it underwater, and make sure nothing got damaged inside. That would be at 11 inches. And what we faced, and what Edison was trying to say, eh, it wouldn't be that big a deal, was 18 feet. Right, right. You know, a number of us are still searching out all the various technical information on this, but, you know, I haven't found the document that talks about just dropping the canister by itself because that 11 inches I found, that was just in some kind of a thick wall cast that was going to provide some protection. What we're talking about falling in that hole is a container that's only five-eighths of an inch thick on the side. That's it. So it's not protected in anything else. And there's another issue that there's a limited amount of time that canister can be in play for loading before it overheats. They are loading fuel so hot that when that canister with the fuel comes out of the pool, it's put in this thick transfer cast, taken over to put it in the hole. During that time period, until the air cooling system is in place, there's a limited amount of time they have to they have to deal with that canister before the fuel in the canister overheats. And what happens to the fuel in the canister overheat still in the? Picture? You know, I would you know that would be a really good question for Edison. What's going to happen? You can't put that back in the pool. You've got a canister sitting there longer and it's overheating. It's going to damage the fuel. The whole point of the cooling system is to keep the fuel from becoming damaged. You've got a roughly a Chernobyl disaster in each can, and they do not have a way to deal with any kind of problems that happen. And they're already talking to the NRC about getting rid of the pool. Now, it's possible they may be able to unload older canisters back into the pool. We don't know that for sure, but but if they're not so hot, they need to keep that pool. So they put us in an impossible situation. This is on Camp Pendleton. San Onofre sitting on Camp Pendleton. You had Len Herring, who's a former Navy admiral, say that if something goes wrong at San Onofre, Pendleton will be useless. I think we're going to need the help of the military to solve this. They're at risk. We're actually going to need the help of the oil and gas industry because one of these canisters exploding, and I have plenty of evidence showing there's a number of ways that can happen, you're going to have cesium particles floating with the wind and going across the United States. So this is not a minor issue here. One of the things that came to mind immediately for me is that Chernobyl, even 32 years after the explosion and the accident there, has a 50-mile exclusion zone around it, which is a no-go area unless you have very specific business on the property. And I was thinking a 50-mile radius 
from San Onofre would include Pendleton. It would include the port of Long Beach. It would reach as far as Disneyland and beyond, if people want to imagine that in their minds. All the businesses, all the property, all the real estate. It would destroy Southern California's economy on its way to then polluting the rest of the country and the rest of the world. It's even worse than that. You've got an international highway. You've got an international rail system. You know, California provides 40% of the cargo imports and exports for the country, 40% of the agriculture. And, you know, California goes between, what, the sixth and eighth largest economy in the world. And so you're going to destabilize the woke economy, state economy, federal economy, and international economy. And nobody's dealing with this. You've got the nuclear regulatory system captured. The Nuclear Waste Technical Review Board says you can have hydrogen gas building up in these and they can overpressurize and explode. I mean, they don't meet basic manufacturing standards. The NRC gives exemptions. I mean, it just goes on and on. And we're running out of time. Your old canisters there, we may only have three years left. Our risk goes up in about three years for one or more of those Chernobyl cans to explode. I wish I was making this up. I wish you were making this up, too. What kind of pushback has there been since not only the understanding of what has been happening at San Onofre with Edison and Holtec, but also since the whistleblower revelation on August 9th? What has the advocacy activist community been doing to try and turn this around? What we're doing is contacting people that have in organizations that have some authority over this. Uh, uh, one of the things right now that's in play is the State Lands Commission uh, is doing an environmental report, and the comments are due August 28th, so this will definitely be included in that. You know, the NRC says that, you know, it'll never happen. There'll be a mishandling error. So you have that. The fact that they're out of compliance with their license is is another issue. At the federal level, you can get some delays with the NRC, but they're so captured, they end up approving about anything. So our only hope is to work at the state level uh, to try and stop this. Now, the state lands, you've got three people on the State Lands Commission, Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom, Betty Yee with the State Controller's Office, and then you've got a, a, a finance director that works for Governor Brown. So those members need to be educated about what's going on. It would help to have the public spreading the word and reaching out to them because you know, it may take some political pressure to get them to do the right thing, given this is an, an election year and it's very difficult to cross Southern California Edison and maybe PG&E. And, you know, is also this can also affect them because they're using Holtec containers and they have similar issues with their systems. So we need the state elected officials to step up and we need the local elected officials to represent us to those state elected officials. The Postal Commission needs to put their permits on hold and not give them any more permits at San Onofre. The Public Utility Commission needs to stop giving them money until this is resolved. 
We don't have a report back from the NRC yet investigating this. So nobody has any business giving them a license to do anything when they're out of compliance with their license. And obviously, as David Fritch says, it wasn't only safety problems and inadequate staff and unqualified staff. He said it's an engineering problem out there. So, you know, we're talking about Holtec having bad engineering in addition to just loading errors. So nobody's addressing that. Edison's trying to downplay it and just say it's a training problem. No, this is total mismanagement and a bad decision by Edison and a bad engineering design by Holtec. I warned Holtec, I warned Edison that Holtec had loaded over half the canisters at Diablo Canyon incorrectly over three loading periods, and Edison just ignored that and hired Holtec anyway. So their bad decisions are going to be going to be the end of us. It's going to take more than just a few people taking care of this for the public. We need other people to get involved and get their local and state elected officials involved in this. And I'm and I'm willing to talk to anybody. I've got evidence and handouts on Santa Nope Safety homepage. Videos are there. You can see the whistleblower. You can see my comments and my interaction with with Palmazano where I'm calling him on his why. So all the information is there. One thing I think is really absurd is Edison is claiming they have some independent expert that claims this is all okay. Ah! Their their independent expert recommended to Edison that they could use a hot cell for a leaking canister. They could ship a leaking canister to Idaho, unload the canister in a hot cell, which is a dry fuel handling facility. That hot cell was destroyed in 2007. So Edison's expert is recommending a non-existent facility to deal with leaking canisters. That's the same expert they're using to say everything is just fine at San Onofre. Oh, and if you believe that, you've got some land in Fukushima you'd like to sell them. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Donna, this is obviously an ongoing nightmare, and not just one here in Southern California, but one that impacts everyone. We will stay in touch with you and with Charles Langley and Nina Babiars and also with Gary and Lori Hedrick. I just let me add one thing. I don't like to have a problem without – I don't. it's not good to just complain – you need to have a solution. The only thing that they have left us with, the only thing that can be done is to move the fuel into thick wall casts that are used throughout the world. And they, they're likely going to need to build a hot cell building so they can handle really hot fuel. And they have left us with no other options. So they need to stop loading more canisters and they need to use thick wall casts that are the safest available commercially, and and they're unfortunately going to need a hot cell. And that needs to be done before anything else is done, or we're going to lose California and then some. Donna, while the news has never been good, it's always good to talk with you and gain your clarity on it, and we will continue to be in touch with you as this story unfolds, because let's face it, With plutonium having a half-life of 24,000 years, this is not a story that's going to be going away anytime soon. Yes, this is nuclear waste into infinity. Donna Gilmore of San Onofre Safety 
And you can find all of this information, including the latest updates on the situation at San Onofre, at sananofresafety.org. A further update on this story. Last week on the show, we told you about a hurried fundraising effort to secure $50,000 to get a team of attorneys to work on stopping Edison from further fuel loading at San Onofre until and unless appropriate safety measures were taken. It's a lot more complex than that, but that's what it boils down to. And the good news is that the money was raised in just four days. And, to use the words of Nina Babiars of Public Watchdogs, the group that was instrumental in raising the money, the attorneys are now in a full court press. We will keep you posted. Activist shout-out! Earlier this year, Beyond Nuclear, one of the venerable anti-nuclear national groups, began a new project, Beyond Nuclear International. It's a weekly digital presentation of news, analysis, and historic information. And each one of these stories is longer than the usual news report that comes out. So in other words, this is a service to help us understand the range of issues that are out there and the underlying issues and incidents that have led us to our current nuclear pickle. Linda Pence-Gunter is heading up that initiative, and I found it interesting enough and important enough to find out from the source exactly what's going on here. Linda and I spoke on June 24th, 2018. Linda Pence-Gunter, great to have you here on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thanks, it's good to be with you. It seems that Beyond Nuclear has been dealing with international nuclear issues in the past, but now there is a second entity called Beyond Nuclear International. What is behind the decision to create this new arm of the organization or brand extension or a shift in beyond nuclear's focus, or is it something else? Well, there are three reasons, really. I think one is that the the whole business has become so internationally intertwined now, obviously. You know, we've got foreign corporations involved in exploiting nuclear projects all around the world, so they're kind of indistinguishable. So if you kill something in one country, you can kill it in another. You know, we've seen our efforts in the US to send the French nuclear industry packing with their EPR reactors, for example. So that was one reason. Another reason, a very important reason, was that I in particular felt very strongly that we need to sort of reframe our arguments if we're to bring people into the movement that are not already really engaged in it. And those who are really engaged, like you and me, we can cope with all the level of detail and intricacy that we give on the Beyond Nuclear site. But if you're just sort of casually interested and you want to draw people in, I felt like we needed to tell the stories differently and in fact, tell them as stories. So Beyond Nuclear International is a narrative site, as you know, it's it's just articles. We don't do other things on the site at all. And it really tries to focus on the human interest and the people to whom this happens. And I guess lastly, the reason was to draw the international anti-nuclear community a little bit closer together. Because frankly, I mean, the story that we just ran about the accident in Brazil, I didn't know anything about that, I'll be honest and tell you. And that took off, like, I mean, that's been one of our biggest stories so far. And so I think that helps for us to all learn just how this industry, whether we're talking nuclear power or nuclear weapons, affects people all around the world and not just people, wildlife, animals, nature, everything. And it helps us network better, 
support those who are in situations where they have few resources. So there was a combination of reasons and they all kind of crystallized together very nicely. So whether it's a gathering place for the international anti-nuclear community or an invitation for environmentalists to join our issue and see how it's connected to theirs or just to reframe it in a way that's a little bit simpler for people to grasp, those are really the fundamental underlying reasons. One of the things that struck me as these started to roll out, what was it, about a month and a half, two months ago? Early March. The stories have all had that human humanitarian element to them and seemed extremely accessible. How do you source these articles? Are you writing them? Are you getting them from existing publications or are you getting them from outside writers? All three, really. I, when it first began, by necessity, I had to write a lot of them. And I am a writer by background, so that came naturally to me, and I enjoy it. So it's given me a lot of job satisfaction to be able to do that. But I definitely wanted to source uh, stories. And so part of it was looking around to see what was out there, especially on Indigenous people or folks in more remote communities that don't get the exposure usually. And I started to find some really good articles. And I've also been encouraging people I know who write well and can tell the story in that way to think about contributing it. Or I've seen something that somebody's already written and I've said, you know, can we reproduce this? I mean, John Pilger's piece on bikini had already been published and I got permission to reprint that. And I thought, well, I don't know, it's a year old and will people know? And it took off like gangbusters. You know, that was probably our biggest and most hits of any piece I've put on the site so far. So it's also kind of fun to see what people will actually read, you know, because sometimes you think, oh, this is going to go crazy and, and no one's looking at all. And another story, I think, oh, it's a little bit obscure, like Judd just went crazy as well. So... That's good, actually, because you realize that you're finding an interest and sparking an interest in issues that people are not exposed to every day and are going, wow, I didn't know about this. I want to read more. So it's a combination. I'm absolutely open to submissions, whether they're original or pre-published, as long as there's permission to republish. If they are written in a way that's, as you said, very accessible and in a sort of humanitarian, with a humanitarian focus, because that's really, I think, what we need to do. How are you distributing Beyond Nuclear International? Does someone have to come to the site and sign up for it, or are you taking advantage of existing lists and existing channels? It's a public website, so anybody can find it, obviously. You don't have to subscribe to read it. People are looking at it who are already on our Beyond Nuclear outreach list. And then I created a new one of international folks that I know that would probably be interested and they're on it. And then you can obviously fan out tremendously through social media. There's a lot of activity on Twitter and on Facebook. Some people use you know, Instagram, other mechanisms to redistribute it. As you know, I mean, you can boost it by getting into new demographics who then retweet it to their lists. So we're building. I mean, it's going to take time. All these things do. It's still a niche issue, even though we're reaching into sort of environmental justice and human rights and dark skies. You know, that was that was a piece of that last piece about the Space Force. So you do reach into new demographics and they do spread the word to theirs. But, you know, not everybody wants to get lots of email either. So I'm very aware of the fact that trying to build big email lists in this day and age is a challenge because everybody's deleting and cutting and saying, no, thanks, you know, <laughs> because our inboxes are overloaded. So, uh, so it's good to see that we're creeping up and not creeping down in that department. 
And the more we can get into tangential issues related to the nuclear weapons and nuclear power struggles, the better, because I think that's how you enlighten folks that all these things are connected. You know, climate change is connected. Nuclear war is connected. They're all connected. What has been the media response, if any, to the stories that you've put out? And has there been any picking up or following up on one of these stories as a seed you planted in a larger media organization's thought process? Well, the one outfit that does seem to watch us quite closely is RT. And I've been on Ed Schultz's show a couple of times now, and RT is a result of things that we've put up. They've been calling on us on the nuclear weapons piece, interestingly, and not on nuclear power. <laughs> That's been much more in the news, obviously. And so there's been a reason for that with, uh, you know, the first time was to do with Russia developing its undetectable nuclear missile and then the whole situation with Korea. So I've got a media list that's directly attached to Beyond Nuclear International. So they get the digest on Monday along with everybody else. Nobody is unsubscribed. So I take that as a good, good sign. But as you know, getting stories in the media on this issue is very difficult unless there's something major going on. Like when Fukushima happened, yeah, we were all over the press every day. And then it eventually it trails away. So we'll see. But that's definitely part of the plan is to make sure that they see everything that we put out so that they may not call us immediately, but it'll be kind of, you know, stored away and there will be... They'll know who we are and what we do and where to find us. And if that comes up, they go, wait a minute, didn't I get something from Beyond Nuclear about that? Let me get back to them and see what they've got to say. So that's part of it. I mean, the press focus is much more strong with Beyond Nuclear, which is our organization. You know, Beyond Nuclear International is a project of Beyond Nuclear. It's an outreach effort. But the press kind of requests we get come predominantly to the mothership, you know, and the four of us that work there. And, and so we do a pretty consistent amount of media each month but the international thing has picked up mostly, I have to say, in India and places like that. We've had a couple of articles in Indian publications and because it's international. We can't always track it either. And of course, international is of less interest to Americans in general than the news here at home. Afraid so, that's true. <laughs> yeah. If someone has an international story, an issue they want to bring to your attention or information to share, what is the best way to approach you, and I presume it is you personally, for inclusion and distribution? Yes, so I'm curating the site so that it should come to me. And my email is linda at beyondnuclear.org. And that is the best way to reach me. That's already been happening, actually. I've had a couple of pitches so far on stories which are, are going to probably run. And I give people um, guidelines a little bit on try to focus it in this way. And, and everyone's been super nice and said, it's okay, I love being edited. I'm super open to editing. So I think that's really good because as a writer, I know that a good editor makes a huge difference to the end product. So uh, we're absolutely open to ideas and finished pieces and ideas for finished pieces or leads to people that you may know that have a good story to tell. However, we can throw the pebble in the pond. And I would say not just articles about people and nuclear issues. One of the focuses of this site is the visual aspect of this. And I think there are lots of different ways to tell this story. It doesn't have to be in words and it can be in pictures or in film. And so the other piece that I'm trying to get is photographers, especially who've done, there are some amazing photo essays on these subjects that I've never seen before and have not made it into our realm. They've been more in the sort of arts realm, you know, or in the 
sort of the National Geographic kind of realm, you know, with small n and small g, but that's sort of seen. And unfortunately, we don't have a budget at the moment to pay for things like this, which always is sort of disappointing to me because I know how hard photographers work and I think everybody should be rewarded for their contributions. But at the moment, we all submit our stuff for free a lot of the time. So anything kind of artistic, even if it's a musical or anything at all that's sort of, you know, there's been operas about Oppenheim. I mean, it's all these, all these things work, right? So any way we can tell the story, comedy, cartoons, whatever it is, is worth having. It's really sort of breaking the boundary, not saying we're just going to be geeky and technical and you know, something, a music video, anything that does this, we're open to looking at it. Sounds fabulous, and what a great opportunity for the artists who maybe aren't technologically advanced, but who have emotional or sociological understandings of what's going on to find another way of putting that information together. We wish you all the best with Beyond Nuclear International. I do intend to take advantage of the opportunity and the platform that you have. And Linda, all best to you in all of your endeavors. Thank you so much, Libby. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Linda Pence-Gunter of Beyond Nuclear and Beyond Nuclear International. She is absolutely serious about looking for issues, reporters, articles to reprint, as well as photography and, who knows, maybe even a musical. So if you've got something in mind that's important for us to know about, make certain to reach out to her at linda at beyondnuclear.org. Yet another step in that line from our theme song, The Activists Are Linking. And I want to thank everyone who purchased a copy of my book on its launch day last Thursday. Yes, I glow in the dark. One mile from Three Mile Island to Fukushima and nuclear hot seat got up to number 17 on the Amazon bestseller list in my category. Yes, I Glow in the Dark tells my story of having been stranded in a house only one mile from the Three Mile Island nuclear reactor during the 1979 meltdown and provides a trail of breadcrumbs from the nuclear 1950s through the Fukushima wake-up call that turned me into an activist, as well as the things that I've learned since then through nuclear hot seat. Outside of my personal narrative... Something I think you'll find interesting are the two chapters I have on what the nuclear industry gets away with and how they get away with it. The mystery is decoded. My book and now the ebook version are available at Amazon.com or you can go to NuclearHotSeat.com book, which will give you an automatic redirect to the page. Now, another request. Once you've read the book, give it a five-star review on Amazon. That's going to help me get acknowledged by them and move up not only in their rankings, but in their advertising promotions. As for whether I actually do glow in the dark or not, that's for a later discussion. Here's today's final thought. And I got to say, after last week's launch, I have got no new thoughts. So I'm out of here. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, August 21st, 2018. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, miningawareness.wordpress.com, sandiegouniontribune.com, psr-la.org, propublica.org, washingtonpost.com, hillreporter.com, cbsnews.com, wallstreetjournal, sciencemag.org, power-technology.com, abqjournal.com, nbcrightnow.com. 
tri-cityherald.com, where reporter Annette Carey has been getting a real workout covering the Hanford situation, thestate.com, utilitydive.com, kdvr.com, power-eng.com, realpharmacywithanf.com, ktnv.com, akiomatsumura.com, jflemma.com, fukuleaks.org, and the perpetually excellent reporting of Nancy Faust of Simply Info, japantimes.co.jp, dailymail.co.uk, mainichi.jp, icanw.org, the international campaign for the abolition of nuclear weapons, Kyoto, nhk.or.jp, beyondnuclearinternational.org, see, they're in there, u.38degrees.org.uk, penarthnews.wordpress.com, indaily.com.au, bologna.org, DurhamRegion.com, TheGuardian.com, TheBulletin.org, the soul-dead cubicle drones who grind out press releases for World Nuclear News, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and a big shout-out to all of you, nuclear hot seat listeners and followers around the world. Do you know that we are in 123 countries on six continents and counting? May we get somebody in Antarctica while there's still ice there. And thanks to everyone who's listening on our growing network of broadcast stations around the U.S. You show your love for life on this planet by being willing to know the truth and then acting upon it. I'm so glad I'm with you on this journey together as kick-ass defenders of nuclear truth and supporters of atomic awareness. Special thanks this week to listener Tom Prettyman in Nebraska for sending a cell phone shot of two articles pinned to his workplace bulletin board. I will take my sources wherever I can find them. If you want to get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered via email every week, it's easy. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com, scroll down for the yellow box. This is especially true. They have to scroll for a bit if you're on a tablet or a smartphone. Put in your first name and email address, and you will get a weekly notification with a link to the show and a brief summary of the material that's in it. Now... If you, yes you, have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment to send a donation of any size to nuclearhotseat.com. We really will appreciate your support. Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2018, Libby, Halevi, and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that with nuclear, the number one issue is and must be long-range safety for people and the environment. That's the bottom of the bottom line. Pass it on. There. You have just had your nuclear wake-up call. So please, don't snooze out and do not go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.